Well, good morning, LCM. Good morning. Today is July 30th, 2023, and the title of today's message is Attractive Opposites. Attractive Opposites. In light of our recent messages, our focus will remain fixed on the throne and the very character of our God, which, by the way, is the solution to all ailments. Say all ailments. Within the heart of man and in the world around us. From the fixed view of God, a righteous perspective can then be obtained in the way you view circumstances, the way you view difficulties, the way you view your triumphs, and more importantly, the way you view each other. Can somebody say amen? amen. Are you ready to grasp the biblical foundation of attractive opposites? Yes. Then turn with us to Psalm 84. As you turn, say attractive opposites. Psalm 84, we'll start in verse 1. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Salah. So when we're looking at these first four verses, understand that when our eyes are fixed on God, it does something special and supernatural to your heart. There's a beloved affection to where God is seated. And there you find joy in making the journey to where God dwells. To have a longing and even a fainting in your own soul to be in the very place where God's presence is, this is what brings about real transformation and an anchor of hope. Is that something that you guys have been experiencing this week? Locking your eyes on his presence and his throne? Well, this goes far beyond just the rote, obligatory actions. It is a yearning to be with God and the people of God, which not only marks the beginning days of your Christian walk, but it grows. It intensifies over the course of time because your fixation upon the king of kings is growing as well. This longing transforms us and brings about a joyful melody, Pastor Wade. La, 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 la. It brings about a jubilant praise because of who God is to you. It's produced in the center of your being, and it emanates forth from your mouth an exaltation of the very character of God. Can I hear some exaltation this morning? Hallelujah! Oh, one more time, make it loud! Hallelujah! I like that. That's good. <laughs> Come on, church, as you begin to set your focus and your attention on the Lord, it does something. It creates a longing inside of you because you realize that it was giving you something that you never had before, and you start to like that. You start to want to be in God's presence more and more. It's such a beautiful thing. Did you guys catch it in verse 3? Koki, can you put up verse 3 on the screen? Look at this. This is amazing. It says, even the smallest, even the sparrow finds a home. A swallow, a nest for herself and her young. Now think about what that means. That in the very place where the God of all creation dwells, there is enough of his presence that even the smallest and most fragile of animals can find a place to be. 
can find a home for not only herself but her young. That is an amazing thought that you really need to grab hold of. That God's presence is so magnificent that even the small animals long to be there and can find a place there. Think about in Matthew 10 and in Luke 12 where Jesus says that we are more precious than even the sparrows. But think about it. He has the sparrows right there beside his presence. Those passages speak of the father knowing even when the smallest bird falls to the ground. Do you know how he would know that? Well, because he's omnipotent, yes. But because they're close to his presence and he sees them. He's concerned for them. He cares about them. So if we can see the heart of Adonai and how he cares for the smallest and most vulnerable of creation, how much more has he prepared for us a place who are his very image that we might dwell with him? You got to be careful. It's not like popcorn, right? Yes, we all agree to that. The God of all creation has a special place close to him that he desires for us to be. Church, this reminds me of Ezekiel. You stay right here in Psalm. In Ezekiel 34, it says, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Come on, church. Now, you can see why we are called blessed when we dwell in his house. Has anybody been blessed by dwelling in this house of the Lord? It's because we are the sheep of his pasture, and he is our great shepherd. Somebody say amen. amen. Let's continue in verse 5. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, and whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. Oh, Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O oh God of Jacob. You should be hearing the echoes of Psalm 23 in the language of these verses. Our great shepherd is strengthening us even as our hearts on the journey to his presence. Isn't it good to have a great shepherd that helps us get to his throne? So every time, every time we go through a valley of tears or difficulty, our God is faithful to lead us to those still waters. He is faithful in making it a place of springs. In him, you know what we have? We have no want. In him, we have no lack. Because he is the God. He is the great shepherd that causes the early rains to cover our lands with pools of blessing. His kindness is there. To lead us from strength to strength. Meaning that when our strength fails, his strength does not. When, his, when our strength fails, his strength does not. Our God is able to daily empower us and restore our souls. Don't you need that on a daily basis? The power of God at work within your soul and being and that ability to then be stood back up onto your feet to rise to his character. He is leading us in paths of righteousness, just as Psalm 23 says. Even through the valleys, whether they be the valley of Baca or they be the valleys of the shadow of death. This is reflected in Revelation 7, 17, but still stay in Psalm 84. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
Despair is not a place to dwell. His presence is the place to constantly dwell. Man, the thought of the great shepherd being on the very throne that rules the universe is an amazing thought. How he leads us to springs of living water. Look at verse 9 back in Psalm 84. It says, Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. See, God has looked upon the face of his anointed, even as he has anointed our heads with oil. Adonai has established us together with one another. And because he's anointed us, that means he is looking upon us. He's anointing us with his precious Holy Spirit so that we can dwell with him. What an amazing thought. To dwell in the house of the Lord forever is the desire of our hearts. Can somebody say amen to that in this house? It's also a primary theme here in the psalm that we're reading through. See, it's day by day that the author of this psalm, the sons of Korah, learned how to cut off all evildoers from their own thoughts, their own desires, and from their presence, even as they are ministering to the faithful in the land. Remember, this is a psalm that's being sung sung to strengthen the people of God, to strengthen the Israelites as they sing it in perpetuity so that it can be reminded of the greatness of our great shepherd. Let's continue in verse 11. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. So when we're looking at this imagery and language of a sun and shield. This is painting a picture of God as the great shepherd. Meaning the watchful eye of our great shepherd that he is wanting and able to stand watch over you from his heavenly throne and provide provision and protection on earth. He desires to give you, his flock, favor from his right hand and honor that exalts the glory of his workmanship within you. To those who walk with integrity of heart, you have something in store for you. And that is his storehouse of all good things. He desires to freely give impart and bestow upon you those blessings from his storehouse. Why? Because he knows that you are one with integrity of heart. And through that integrity, you then will turn and be a blessing to others. Isn't that the whole reason why God blessed Abraham in the first place? I am blessing you so that through you, all nations will be blessed. Has anyone in this house been freed from your bondages of sin and shame? I mean, I, I didn't see every hand go up, so I'm going to ask again. You got to be truthful, though, because God's going to weigh and measure your heart right now. You were freed from the bondages of sin and shame in order that you may be brought into the kingdom of the son that he loves. Yes, it was to get rid of those chains and those shackles and that guilt that weighed heavily upon your soul that devoured every form of life, no matter how much you put inside of it. But it was for the intent of bringing you near to him. Commissioning you as his ambassador of his kingdom. Why? So that your life would be a pleasing offering just as the king of kings life was a pleasing offering to the father. Let's take a look at Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 20. Hold your place there in Psalm because we're going to come back to it here in just a second. But Hebrews 13 and verse 20. Somebody say attractive opposites as you turn there. Now may the God of peace, 
who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. See, Hebrews 13 connects the actions of the great shepherd. He's the great shepherd of the sheep is what it says in verse 20 with the title of God of peace or the God of shalom. Now you understand that we're not talking about a lack of difficulty. We're talking about someone who is able to put all things in right order through shalom. Jesus, who is the prince of peace, is ever watchful to feed and tend the flock while all the more ready to go to war with anything that will harm them. What was the title of this message again? Attractive opposites. So far we haven't shown you any of the opposite yet, have we? We've been talking about how good it is to be in God's presence. And that should be a reminder to you. Yes, we know it, but that longing for his presence. Here in Hebrews 13, you're getting a picture of something. That the great shepherd is also the great God of Shalom. And so a great shepherd has to be willing to go to war with anything that is opposing and harmful to the sheep. He's not timid or reserved in tangling with the powers and the heavenly realms that seek to kill, steal, and destroy those within his care. There's a comforting gentleness in his eyes. And, somebody say and. Those are the same eyes that are filled with fire that you can see in the book of Revelation. A fiery zeal that will consume and destroy his enemies and drive out that which threatens the life of his sheep. Isn't that the very reason why you are in his kingdom now? That he was a great shepherd that had fire in his eyes and he was seeking to destroy anything that would harm you. You know, we stand in a place of God's favor. We stand in a place of his blessing, but also the protection of his covering. This is clearly evident four times within Psalm 84. When the Lord is declared as the Lord of hosts, or as we say in Hebrew, Justin Treaster, Yahweh Sabaoth. This Lord of hosts. So we have a slide for you to help you see something that you may have missed, and for sure you probably did because we missed it as well. Yahweh Sabaoth in Psalm 84. In verse 1, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. That is a deliberate title that is showing the character of God within this text. Verse 3, even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars. Say it with me. O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Verse 8, say it with me again. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. And verse 12, O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. So in the passages we covered in Psalm 84, the title Lord of hosts or Yahweh Sabaoth, this means literally commander of the Lord's armies. It is the title of a commander in chief, a man of war, or as we will declare it today, the great warrior. Somebody say great warrior. To say Yahweh Sabaoth is to call him the commander of heaven's armies. A great warrior. Special forces kind of guy who is standing there and not just one who can do it. He is leading the host of heaven. O Lord of hosts, 
is a military term that is used to describe who God is. Now, our brothers reminded us last week. Wasn't that an amazing sermon last Sunday? I mean, absolutely amazing. They reminded us of a suffering king that Psalm 22 speaks about that. And then in Psalm 23, you found out about the shepherding king. And then in Psalm 24, you found out about the superior king. See, this was the pattern of how David was developed into his kingship that led him to making the charter that he did. And it's the heavenly pattern by which Jesus ascended to being the king of all kings. So turn with us to Psalm 24 as we re-engage with this in light of our Yahweh Savaot, the Lord of hosts. Say attractive opposites as you turn. Psalm 24 and verse 8. It says... Who is the king of glory? Okay. Y'all with it? Pretend like you, you not heard Psalm 24 and like me and read it a thousand times. Who is the king of glory? Can somebody say that that's a good, that's a good question? Who is this king of glory? The Lord. You know, the one I'm talking about. Strong and mighty. The Lord. Mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And then the refrain in the song that asks the question again, who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. Yahweh Savaot, the commander of all of the armies of heaven, he is the king that we are talking about. See, the answer to this very good question of who is the king of glory is given as Yahweh Savaot. So what does that mean? It means that the psalmist David, in understanding who God is, is describing God as one who is strong. He's able to defend and fight for his people, who is mighty. Born, literally born to rule, who is brave. And I'm going to use this word because it fits. He's manly. There is a masculinity that is there that helps us to understand who our God is. Someone who is strong. Someone who is able. Someone who is capable. Someone who is a fierce warrior. That is the king of glory that we serve. No matter what they say in our day and time, masculinity is what is reflected from our God. When you are a strong man, you are being like Yahweh Savaot, the Lord of hosts. Let me hear some men in this house shout, Lord of hosts. It is good to be manly. It is righteous to be manly. Let's go to another manly scripture. Are you ready, men? Let's go. Revelation 19. Say attractive opposites as you turn. Attractive opposites. Oh, and just like the handgun, we'll go to Revelation 19.11. Just like we planned. Yeah. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and does what? Makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. Is this a manly display of our king? Is he a warrior, a good boy, high yield? Yes. 
Well, what we're capturing in this passage is that at the culmination of the ages, heaven itself opens in order to reveal the righteous one. The righteous one as he enters the battlefield, seated upon his victorious white steed. He who has been perfectly obedient to his father's will is now carrying out the father's desire to make war on his enemies in epic conflict. We've all studied for many years what it takes to make peace. And it definitely does not look like the UN. It looks like the manly nature of our God who goes to war. You know what? Disney is wrong. Disney is epically wrong. Snow White is wrong. There's no such thing as a Prince Charming. There's only the Prince of Peace who comes to establish Shalom. Who comes down and not just with a gentle kiss awakens his bride, but he pours out his mighty power and he resurrects her from the grave. Disney is wrong. Now more than ever. So we want you to notice something. Notice the titles are as numerous as the royal crowns or diadems that he is wearing in this passage. His name is being displayed as he makes war, wearing a robe dipped in blood while being called the word of God. The living and active double-edged sword that he is in manifest uh, fashion. In fact, he is that living and active word of the Father's voice, displaying the Father's name. And it is for the purpose of entering into battle as Yahweh Sabaoth. And by the way, the blood that his robe is dipped in is not his own. It's the blood of his enemies that he is now covered in because of his victorious approach and, and arrival here. Look, as we turn to Exodus 15.3, I'm so appreciative of our worship team today. Horse and the Rider, I am so glad that you pulled that out because we're going to go to Exodus 15.3 right now to see abundantly. It's abundantly clear who the Father is and what his name entitles. Look at Exodus chapter 15 and verse 3. It says, the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Now, you may not be very good at math. But I like it when there's just little simple equal signs in what the scripture says. The Lord equals a warrior. The Lord equals a warrior equals his name. This is the definition of who he is. And think about this. This is Moses. After watching the deliverance that Yahweh Sabaoth brought by utterly decimating the armies of Egypt. Moses lets loose with a song of praise. What you're reading here is in the midst of worship unto God. He is singing of praise and making a song so that all the people will know and understand the revelation. He's letting loose a song of praise from his own lips that testifies about the absolute warrior that has burst on the scene in victorious might. It was apparent in Moses' day and throughout the written word that our God is a God of war. And he makes war with the full might of his name on behalf of his people. What kind of weaponry does he have? He has his own name that begins to work his mighty power. Now you might be thinking, I know pastors, y'all, 
We started off and we were in Psalm 84 and we were looking at the great shepherd. A God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Who's rich in mercy, full of compassion and forgiveness. Yes. Yes, he is. The father who gave his son for all the sins of the world. So it begins to really beg the question, how is it that he can be a great warrior, full of fire and wrath, and be a great shepherd that is seeking to save the lost, bring back and bind up the injured and bring back the strays? So the reason that we read through Psalm 84, the reason that I have read through this my entire life until about the last 10 days, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! It's in the very first verse. There's nothing in between those two thoughts. And I missed what was going on. How is it that you and I can only see the beautiful nature of longing to be near him, just like the sweet little sparrows, and fail to see that in the exact same verse we are addressing the Lord of heaven's armies? Can anybody be honest? I was just honest with you. Has anybody ever seen that before in you? Not, not hardly any of you. Nobody did. Why? Because we like to see what we like to see in our God. When we want or need his shepherding, we lose from our field of view his great ability and the warrior quality that he possesses. The Lord is my shepherd. Yes, but that's not all that he is. When we're facing down the hordes of hell, man, we lose from our field of vision that he leads us beside the still waters. It is a difficult thing for us as humans to see the whole picture. We get fixated on one part. We can't see all that there is, the entire field of view. We have trouble holding to the fact that the answer to every problem in the world, every problem that the world has or that we have, is his great nature that is fully defined in both him being a great warrior and a great shepherd. Not in balance, like he's on a seesaw, teeter-totter, whatever you call it. The fullness of a great warrior and the fullness of a great shepherd simultaneously. See, if we're having trouble seeing our God that way, it's no wonder that we're so far from seeing ourselves as the answer to every problem that the world has. Okay, let me be more specific. Men. No wonder you have trouble seeing yourself as the answer to every problem that your family has and that the world has around you. He is the answer to every problem. Can everybody say amen to that? Amen. If you have a trouble relating to that, then you just need to get saved today and we'll have an opportunity for that somewhere later. But we don't have a problem saying that about him. But the realization that when we are like him, both a warrior and a shepherd simultaneously, we are the answer to every problem that exists in this entire world. Every problem that your wife has, every problem that your kids have, every problem that your job and the world around you has, man, it is found in you being just like your great shepherd and your great warrior king. Man, I want to hear you say, I am the answer to every problem. I am the answer to every problem. Say it one more time, a little more manly. I am the answer to every problem. Yeah, that's fantastic. Are you hearing the repeated statement that God is both? 
simultaneously a great shepherd and a great warrior? Simultaneously. Now, many of you will nod your head at this moment when we say that, yes, he is both. But in reality, how does this play out when you see God's judgment on someone and you feel like they didn't deserve it? Or when he extends his mercy and you are furious, you're incensed, thinking that they do deserve his judgment. See, the problem's not with God. The problem's with you. The truth is you do not have complete understanding of who he is. And here's what you have done. You have self-determined what God should be in those moments. You have self-determined what and who God should be in those moments. That's not your right. It's not my right. And when you do, you are juxtaposing or setting in contrast as opposites the reality that he is both the great shepherd and the great warrior. What you're doing in that moment is conforming, conforming the image of God through the mind of man. I'll help you. Forcing what you want God to be rather than you becoming who he is. That's what we do. We have to own it. So let us help you to, as you're engaging with this concept here. Especially to the men. We're going to be speaking to the men a lot. Women. You should thank us. Because the men are the solution to every problem that we have. We are addressing you by addressing the men in the room. So the real problem, men, is that we want to be one or the other, or truthfully, neither of the two. Okay? Y'all ready? All right. Some of y'all are tensing up. You should. Buckle up. Brace up. yourself like Brace a man. Brace yourself like a man. When you must make shalom, which demands conflict, and you choose to act in a compassionate way. No, that's not actual compassion, by the way. Compassion is to feel exactly what God feels and move upon that. But you choose to try to be soft about it so because you just don't actually want to face the conflict of speaking to your wife the way that you must, to addressing the issue in the kids, to addressing the issues that are around you. I want to remind you today that God is the great warrior, and he wants you to boldly confront every issue that's before you with the sword of God. Can somebody say amen to that? Amen. Anybody ever failed to address the thing that needed to be addressed? What do they call it in our vernacular? The elephant in the room, something giant, a giant issue that's before you that everybody's supposed to pretend is not there. That's you failing to be the great warrior. You are walking as a coward and must rise up to the image of God. How about this? How about the other end? The other side of this. When you're just, I'm just upholding the standard, brother. I mean, I'm ready to execute God's wrath. Of course, always on someone else and never on yourself. Because clearly that's where all of his wrath needs to be is everywhere else but right here. I want to remind you that God is the great shepherd and wants you to walk in the same exact heart attitude that he has, showing the same mercy to them. Because by the way, if you really think about it, you've received much more mercy for much worse offenses that you're trying to judge someone else about. How about when you just don't want to be involved at all? 
You don't even care enough about the situation to try to be a great shepherd or be a great warrior. You just check out. You go to your, you go to your little nothing box. Hey, hon, what are you thinking about? Nothing. See, women don't understand that, by the way. They're, they're like, there's no way you could be thinking nothing. No. No, no, that's very possible. Nothing. What's going on in there? Absolutely nothing. I am invisible. I am inv Shh. You're running away from having to be either, and you're worried about failing at both, so you just withdraw. You're not even trying to be one or the other. You're just saying, I won't be either. I'm just going to back out of this. You know what? As a matter of fact, I'm just afraid that I can't, so therefore I won't. Instead of dealing with my own heart, I, I may fail at this. Yes, you may. But you know what it is to be a man? It's to, be, it's to be one who stands up and goes after it, whether you win or lose. That's not even the point. Whether it is achieved in the way that you think it should, that's not even your goal. Stand up and be like your great warrior and your great shepherd king. Stand up and move forward. But this has been difficult. But I don't. Stand up and do what God has told you to do. But I don't know. Yeah, you will never know if you can succeed if you always just remove yourself from the fight. Let's read Exodus 15, 3 again. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is a warrior. And Yahweh is his name. When we're looking at this, like Pastor Wade said, it's to the point. It's simplistic, and we do not have the right to alter or change his name. These declarations of our father as the great warrior and great shepherd are not juxtaposed, but work in conjunction. They're not juxtaposed, but they work in conjunction. And this is easily seen in Psalm 84. They are not to be in contrast with one another, but are complementary and essential of one another. These are the attractive opposites of God, and they must be displayed in your life. Rashi has some wonderful comments that put the finger exactly on what we're preaching about this morning. Rashi's commentary is on Exodus 15.3, and I'll read it. His wars are not waged with weapons, but he wages battle with his name. And David said to Goliath before fighting him, you come to me with spear and javelin, and I come to you with the name of the Lord of hosts. The Lord, Yahweh, denoting the divine standard of clemency, is his name. Even when he wages war and takes vengeance upon his enemies, he sticks to his behavior of having mercy on his creatures and nourishing all those who enter the world. Unlike the behavior of earthly kings. When he, an earthly king, is engaged in war, he turns away from all his other affairs and does not have the ability to do both this, wage war, and that other things. He gets right to the point. Man in his own strength cannot do both simultaneously. You'll do one and neglect the other. 
Or like Pastor Wade said, just go ahead and neglect them all. But the nature, character, and name of our God is able to do both simultaneously. So realize that to act like the Father and the Son of God requires supernatural enablement to be both a great shepherd and a great warrior at the same time. Chloe, would you put up the Yahweh Savaot in Psalm 84? So let's take what Pastor Matt just said and look at it on the screen. See, the greatness of our God is that it is a beautiful, beloved, lovely dwelling place that he makes, and he is the Lord of heaven's hosts. That even the sparrow can find a home, and he is the Lord of hosts. That's like a special, that's like you hiring a special forces, black ops kind of operative, asking him to be the babysitter for your, for your kid. I got John Wick to be my babysitter. I'll take that. Isn't that exactly who you would want to have? What could possibly happen to your baby with that kind of a warrior? This is the contrast that's here. Tender enough in his presence that a sparrow can stay, find the home not only for that bird, but for her, her children as well. And... He is the ultimate great warrior. Bad dude. Bad dude. He is the God of all the armies of heaven, and he's going to listen to you when you whisper a prayer. He is the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Savaot, and he blesses you because you put your trust in him. We see those as contrasting. We see those as words like juxtaposed against each other. We see them as the opposite ends of a spectrum. And we're saying that they are complementary and they are actually one fully, fully revealed in him, in his character. See, the attractive part about these two seemingly opposite functions of a great warrior and a great shepherd, they are complementary they complement each other, and they are the very image of God himself. They are the very image of God himself. I think we've shown that pretty conclusively throughout the Law of Prophets and Writings. But let's go to Genesis 1. We're going to pick up in verse 27 with this in mind. Everyone say attractive opposites as you turn. Attractive opposites. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, masculine singular. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So now, having studied the character of our God with the attractive opposites, when he's making man in his own image, he is making man to be simultaneously a shepherd and a warrior. Both. It's not something that you have to just pray and hope 
you know, is bestowed and falls upon you or it's a gift that someone else has but you don't. You're made in God's image, therefore you have both the capabilities. And those capabilities are, as listed in the Adamic mandate, to be fruitful, multiply, and fill. That's the work of a shepherd. That's the work of cultivating, bringing about a harvest that nourishes and feeds God's people. But it is incomplete if you do not have fill, a subdue, I'm sorry, subdue and, and having dominion. If you're a farmer that doesn't know how to fight, you won't be a farmer for long. To subdue and, multi, and, subdue and have dominion is to act within God's image of being a warrior. Men operating in the image of the Father is the answer to all of the world's problems. That's why God states this to the very first man that he made in his image. That's why God has imparted into us his character, his divine nature, and his being. And we do not have the right to pick and choose either one or negate them altogether. When we do, we are refusing the image of God being displayed through us. We are altering the image of God being displayed to the world. But when we act upon both, by the supernatural power of God, being both a shepherd and a warrior, things begin to get right. Let me paint a picture for you. You walk into a home. It's in chaos and disarray. Stuff is strewn everywhere. There is a father there. There is a mother and there's children. Who do you look to to put that house in order? The father. There's an obvious situation that he is neglecting. But if he begins to blame shift and blame it on the kids and blame it on the wife, he is not fulfilling his role operating in the image of God. Now, if you walk into another home and things are in right order, what do you suspect happens whenever someone leaves a candy wrapper on the floor? What are they going to do? Well, you're going to get off your butt and pick it up. That's what you're going to do. Because that is the order that the father of the house has established. Now, he's definitely not going to come in with a flamethrower and just burn everybody down to the ground. But he's also not going to sit back in passivity and put blame on everybody else or why his house is not kept in order. You walk into that home that's in order, and immediately you can sense the shalom, the right order, and that disorder is not going to be tolerated. But it's for the purpose of providing to the household what they need to live and thrive and produce a harvest of righteousness. Being a great shepherd and a great warrior is the image of God that he created man from. And this process can be stated as theomorphic. Everyone say with me, theomorphic. Meaning that man is to be shaped into the image of God. Man is to be shaped into the image of God. It is incontestable that the Father made man in his image, and that man being the male form, Adam. This means that the solution to all problems starts with men being a man made in God's image. 
with his easer perfectly reflecting him by his side. There's a satanic scheme that's been at work since day one. And that is to twist and pervert the shaping of man into God's image by trying to shape God into our own image. That's been from the beginning. Or you can hoop and holler about all the trans and whatever else is going on now. But that's a continuation of an archonic ploy. The end result of trying to shape God into our own image is that it works to shape man into this world's image. This is what is meant by the word anthropomorphic. So we have theomorphic being made into God's image and anthropomorphic making God into man's image and thereby the world's image. Take a look at this slide that we have for you. We wanted to show you a quote that was brought to our attention just the other day. Talking about man made in God's image. Although we may think of fatherhood. Everybody say fatherhood. As a metaphor that we apply to God. Scripture has things the other way around. Okay, so let's, let's just take this as we're going through it. When Jesus calls God his father, this is not anthropomorphic language. This is not man's characteristics being assigned to God. Man, anthropo, like as in anthropology, morphic, to be formed, to be shaped, to be changed. We are not making God in our image. Rather, when we call men our father, that is theomorphic language. This is who he is, and it is us engaging with who he is and his image and us understanding and being formed and shaped by who God is. God is the archetypal father. He is the epitome. He is what defines fatherhood. God is what defines a warrior. He is what defines a shepherd. Our words are not meant to be projected to him. His character, his essence, is what we are being shaped by and being formed into. Think about this. Think about Ephesians 3. We're going to put this on the screen for you. I want to read through this in light of this concept that we're talking about, of God being the great shepherd and the great warrior. Ephesians 3.14, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family, and as you already know in your footnotes there, from every family, from whom all fatherhood and therefore all manhood are derived. All fatherhood is derived from the Father. He is the one that determines what fatherhood is and therefore what manhood is from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you, listen to this verbiage, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. What does that sound like? Sounds like a warrior. Somebody say warrior. warrior. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love. Somebody say shepherd may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's both the warrior and the shepherd. That is both the image that you were created in and what he is forming and fashioning and shaping you into. 
Verse 20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. He's able to do more like a good shepherd, like a great shepherd would, according to the power at work within us. That's the great warrior part of his character. To him, somebody say to him, to this great warrior and great shepherd, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. This is who fatherhood comes from. This is who manhood is derived from, and he is the one that we have been created, we have been made in his image and are being ever formed to be just like him. So when you think of an embodiment of both warrior and shepherd, this is most certainly King David himself, King of Israel. But it's also a group that you might not have so readily identified as, and that is the Levitical priesthood. These were men chosen by God generationally to care for the flock of Israel by teaching them God's commands and laws. They were to hold them accountable to God's standards, investigating matters of sin and injustice and being the voice of a warrior to the nation of Israel. So everyone turn with us to Deuteronomy chapter 20. Say attractive opposites as you turn. We're going to pick up in verse 1. When you go to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army greater than yours, do not be afraid of them. Because the Lord your God, who brought you up out of Egypt, will be with you. When you are about to go into battle, the priest shall come forward and address the army. They're first on the scene. He shall say, hear Israel. Today you are going into battle against your enemies. Do not be faint-hearted or afraid. Do not panic or be terrified by them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. So let's combine these together. While carrying out the duties of a shepherd, the priests were simultaneously stepping up to lead the warriors in their midst. They were the tip of the spear to give the men the charge to go into battle. They were echoing the voice of Yahweh Sabaoth and reminding them of their image and the presence of their commander-in-chief. The way that this practically applies to us is that you, men, the priests of your homes, are supernaturally empowered and divinely called to step up. You are supernaturally empowered and called to step up. How, you may say. Well, step up, as a, step up as a warrior when conflicts arise. Step up when calamity descends upon you and your household. Step up in the shepherding of your family, knowing the face of your flock and not waiting for someone else to do it for you. The supernatural part of this is being able to do all of these at the same time. I'll give you some hypothetical examples. So you're there at work. Warring through issues. And all of a sudden, you got to take a phone call. That phone call comes from home. And it's a phone call for you to shepherd your family when your toddler just threw up all over your wife. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Perfect timing. And the car broke down. 
and your bank account just went to five cents that's left inside of it. It's more than I have most of the time. <laughs> Hypothetical, right? So men, say, that's me. That's me. As priests, it is your duty to shepherd as the great shepherd has fed and guided you. Adjusting God's commands to accommodate potential conflict is not operating in the image of God. Neither is going to war over issues that God is not at war with. Your entire manhood was created in the image of God. And it is to function all the days of your life within the image of your father. This is a reality that each and every man hearing our voice has to embed into your being. It is by the grace of God that you've been tasked with this honor and endeavor from him because he assigned to you the very image that he holds. Ladies in the house listening to this call are to be overwhelmingly thankful that you have real men in your midst. This includes you single ladies as well. What God does is give you a family like this one where there are real men that can help influence you, show you, and, go, and do and protect for you, protect you for everything that you are worth because God has put you here. The answer to every problem is masculine holiness. Real life in the kingdom means that you will lie down in safety and be led to still waters in the midst of conflict and chaos. Panic and fear of the what-ifs and the what-abouts are reined in because men are made in God's image among you. <laughs> I'm, I'm reminded of just uh, last year on Father's Day. I went to visit with my daughter and my son-in-law as they were having a baby. Little Dawn was being birthed. And I walked into the hospital on Father's Day. On Father's Day. And met with immediate opposition from the entirety of the nursing staff that was there. I had a cowboy hat on. I walked in. I was as meek and mild as I know how to be. I walked into the room. I was holding sweet little baby Dawn, sitting there speaking with Olivia and Timo, just enjoying and basking in the goodness of God. A security guard walks in and said, you have to leave. I'll be glad to leave. I'll finish up what I'm doing here. We were sitting down. She walks in. She leaves. She storms out of the room. She comes back in a few minutes later, said, I'm about to bring the entirety of our security staff to remove you. I said, wait a minute. You need to stop everything that you're doing right now. I'm sitting here holding a baby. I did not just become passive and run out of the room. And she stood there. What was my crime? I was a man on Father's Day holding my grandchild. That was my crime is that I was a man. I was actually very proud in that moment. What I did, we finished up. I addressed the person very directly. I then laid my hands on my daughter, full of gentleness and tenderness, and began to pray over her in the Holy Spirit. That woman ran out of the room. We finished up, and I left the premises. I can assure you that that was one of my favorite moments in my life. 
not just because it was the birth of a second grandchild, but because I stood and I realized that I was acting in the image of my heavenly father and that offended everyone around me. Praise God. May you have the same kind of experiences. May you be so much of a man of God that people are revolted by when you walk in the door. You haven't said anything. You haven't done anything. And by God, don't apologize for standing there. That the masculinity that God has. See, you, church, were able to come to the Son of God because the Father drew you to him. This is what John 6 says. Further, each of you in this room, you were drawn to LCM because the Spirit of God brought you here in order that each of you would walk fully in the image of God. That full image of a great shepherd and a great warrior. You were drawn here because you instinctively saw the holy masculinity that has been cultivated here and realized that it was exactly what you needed. But let me tell you, for everyone there is both a drawing to real masculinity and there is something repulsive about it. You are drawn to it and even in this room, now I'm not talking about the world anymore, you're drawn to it, but there's also a part of you that you're afraid that you can't be what it is. It's a drawing and a repulsion that's there and that creates a tension in the inside of both men and women. See, much like the priest standing before the nation of Israel in wartime, we say to you, do not be afraid of living in the full image of the one who created you. We're not going to be neutered by remaining neutral. A neutral place where somewhere that's between the immutable characteristics of Adonai. You were made, created, and are being formed into the fullness of who he is. Man, in this room, you are the solution. You are the solution to the problems of the world. You're the solution to every problem in your home. And you, LCM, are empowered to be the total package and the answer to every problem that may come before you. Some men in the room say, I am the answer. I am the answer. I'm so glad that what drew you to this church was holy masculinity. Because you know in this house, we're not going to sing worship songs that are sitting in the lap of Daddy Jesus and have kisses and lollipops. But what we will do is kneel before the Lord our God and adore him while standing up to our feet and saying that he is the king at our head that leads us into battle. Let's all turn to Titus chapter 2. Let's do it. Verse 11 is where we'll pick up. This is important. I want everybody to say there whenever you are there. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no. Say it again. It teaches us to say no, no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Saying no from the position of God's grace is the most masculine thing that you can do. I'll say it again. Saying no from the position of God's grace is the most masculine thing you can do. 
mean that you're saying no to every evil and subtle force that tries to shape God into what we think he should be. To shape ourselves and other men into the image of this world and what they say we should be. It is holy masculinity to say no to deceit found within your home. It is godly manhood to say no to slander and divisive speech that enters into your ears. You and I are going to become experts at saying no because of the flood of dissipation that is immediately surrounding us. The world thinks it's strange when men of God say no and mean it. When men of God have a real conviction, a biblical conviction, they say no and they have the spine to stand firm and won't be moved. That's an enigma. When you don't plunge into the cesspool with them, what they'll do is they'll heap abuse on you. But praise God that that happens. The glory of God rests on our shoulders in that moment. That means that you are standing as a man who has been created in the image of God, and in that moment you are reflecting the Lord of hosts. It is the grace of God that teaches you to say no. Make sure you don't miss that. Teaches you to say no. Meaning that it is by his grace that you can hear, retain, and implement the truths found in his word and then become immovable from them. It is his grace, therefore, that corrects you each time that you didn't say no when you should have. So, don't loathe and defeat. Don't blame shift it to somebody else. Actually step up as a man and take responsibility for your actions. Step up into the Father's image of manhood that does exist within you. As Ephesians 4.13 states it plainly, that the labor of your leaders is to equip you for the work of ministry, attaining unity in the faith and knowledge of the Son of God, which is mature manhood, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So let's put this together. Let's do some math. The fullness of Christ is the crowning achievement of mature manhood. It is God's image being fully displayed in us. The grace of God that teaches us to say no. Men in the house, say no. No. Developing that rightly is masculine holiness. For you to be able to stand up and say no to the things that must be denied and stand there. No, not going to do that. You can't make me. You can't take anything from me. I am saying no, and I will not be moved from this position. Take my job. Take my home. Take my resources. You can even try to come and take my life. But I say no, and I will not be moved from that. Can you feel the approval of God as we're even speaking about this today? The, di- the flood of dissipation in our world is only going to grow, and it's only going to mean that you need to stand more firmly each and every time that you say no. Did you hear the prophetic word during worship? The armor is on, but it needs to be cinched down. It needs to be tightened up. You know what we're doing for you today? We're saying, let us help you with that. That that breastplate of righteousness that you have, let us cinch that down so it sits rightly over your heart. Let us put that sword in your hand. Make sure that it's stable. This is what is going on today. Let's look back at Titus 2.11. 
For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. By learning to say no and living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives, you are then being the solution for the depraved and decadent conditions of our present time. You are being the solution that God has created you to be. This can only be accomplished by living as a shepherd and a warrior simultaneously. You cannot attain manhood if you only have one or the other, and you definitely don't have manhood if you do neither. Is there a man in this room that wants the grace of God to teach you how to say no like a man? Then look, let's look at the pinnacle of mature manhood our superior King Jesus, to see it in action in Matthew chapter 16. Shout out no whenever you get there. (laughs) Matthew 16, 21. (laughs) You guys catching on. From that time... Just remember he said that. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So as the time was drawing near for Jesus to be crucified, what he's doing is that he's revealing the will of the Father to these men who had been attached to him for three and a half years. And he's laying out the entirety of of the plan of God. Now, in this moment, Jesus modeled mature manhood by stepping up and addressing his men about the Father's battle plan. The end result was stated very, very plainly that on the third day, he would be raised. He didn't fail to inform him of that. But instead of seeing this, the Son being shaped into the image of the Father, one particular disciple tried to shape God's son into the image and plan of man. Look at verse 22. And Peter took him, Jesus, aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Now, think about this. Peter has just received the revelation that Jesus was the son of God, the embodiment of the very living presence of God, In other words, he realized that Jesus was a great warrior and a great shepherd. Yet, when he was being while he was being shepherded by Jesus, Peter did not want the warrior aspects of the divine image to be necessary in that moment. Oh, you're going to have to suffer. You're going to have to go through difficulty. Far be it from you, Lord. That shouldn't happen to one such as you. Peter was benefiting from the great shepherd speaking, teaching, revealing the secrets of the kingdom. The thought of the Christ having to suffer and die made him say no to the plan of God and the resurrection power that had just been declared. Let's try to remove the countless sermons that you've heard on this passage and let the reality sink into your heart. You and I have done the exact same thing. We've looked at the need to operate in full masculine warrior mode and just said no. It's just too hard. I can't. 
I won't. See, when you separate yourself from the total package of the image of God, you're saying no to being the very solution that the world needs. Let's see how this passage continues. Verse 23. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. You know what this is? This is the grace of God teaching Peter to say no to the right thing. And he's being taught by Jesus boldly as a great warrior confronting in Peter his incorrect use of manhood. When you are setting your mind on the things of man, you are saying no to the attractive opposites of God's holy masculinity. Plainly stated, you are saying no to God's image. Now, just because you say the word no or never doesn't make you a mature man. I think for most of us in the room, the first or second word uttered out of our mouths as an infant is no. Saying no to what is in opposition to God and his will is the display of mature manhood. Jesus is being the perfect model of masculine holiness by simultaneously acting as the great shepherd and as a great warrior. So to the men in this room, we're going to set aside our phones that are going off there. We're actually going to need to be men. The problems that you are facing inside of your own home, in your own life, wherever you go, are because you are failing to stand up in the image of God and be the man that you're supposed to be. Does that seem too simple to you? Because it's not. So you're going to stand up, men, just to the men. You're going to stand up right now. Real men in this room, stand up right now. You're going to be a real man and you're going to say no to certain things. Like out of your mouth. Like with your own voice, you're going to say no. You're going to say no to focusing and acting based on your own feelings of inadequacy. That's too hard. I can't. I won't. Let me hear a real man in this house say no. No. You're going to say no to blame shifting. To making it someone else's fault everybody else's fault so you don't have to deal with your own heart issue that you feel weak and you can't do it. Let me hear a real man in this house say no. No. You're going to say no to fault finding. Fault finding, especially with leaders here in this house or other men. You're drawn by the masculinity that is in this house, but you are repelled. And so instead of dealing with it, standing up and being a man, you decide that you're going to fault find with the men that are around you who are attempting great things, who are walking as a shepherd and a warrior. Well, I don't like the way that they just walked as a warrior. If you are committed to get rid of fault finding, let me hear a real man in this house say, no. No. Since we don't have two 
kinds of services. One when it's just our regular family and one when guests are watching. So if you're new here, this is us and we're going to speak as freely as we would at any other time. I do want to acknowledge, though, that there are fathers in this room that I don't personally know. But I do know that you represented loving stability and boundaries because I've met your sons. You gave us something to work with. They had a decent head on their shoulders when they arrived because they had at least a father in their life that was consistently loving and consistently strong. What we're in the business of is equipping men to be ministers. That foundation is a starting point. But like I mentioned, this is not a kind of church where we act one way on a Sunday and a different way on a Tuesday evening. We are who we are, and we're unapologetic about it. These pastors have walked us from Genesis all the way to Revelation. They showed you that in Genesis 1, 27 through 28, we are to image God and subdue the earth and have dominion over it, cultivating the land. In Revelation 17, we're pictured as the armies alongside Yahweh Sabaoth. Revelation 19 and 20, we're pictured as the bride of Christ alongside her husband. If either of those make you uncomfortable, get over it. It's what the Bible says and depicts us as. When we're learning what it is to say no to ungodliness so that as we can follow the path in Titus 2, become zealous for good works, it's relatively pointless to highlight what we are called to if we don't get specific enough to make real changes in this room. We are family and we're committed to the success of every man in here. But let's be honest, the areas that we are having the most trouble in this family are the men who still have effeminate tendencies. You don't know how to relate to the other men in the room because you have not displayed holy masculinity for most of your life. Even the term holy masculinity, we are all for, it's on our walls, we preach about it. There is no such thing as holiness that is not masculine for a man because it is what God displays. It's not a uniquely human term, it is who God is, and we were created in his image. So if you're not masculine, then you're not holy. Ephesians speaks to us about growing up in the mature manhood of Christ in the fourth chapter. The major import is that we must no longer be tossed to and fro like children by every wave of thought, doctrine, or teaching. If your life has been unstable in your team meetings, if your life has been unstable in the work product of your household, it is because you have to grow up, and this is what this message is calling you to. These two men I've known my entire life. They're capable of singing beautiful love songs to their wives. They're capable of going to battle. Wade is one of the more highly educated men that you will ever meet, and you won't hear him breathe a word about it. He also will roll up his sleeves and take a transmission out of his car and put it back in. Why am I emphasizing that? It's because they've produced children that at 18 years old were ready to be married, working full-time, holy, and in love with God, and are on a track to become ministers of the gospel. 
So those of you who are having the most problems with this ministry and you find areas of it carnal in your own natural assessment, how are your children doing? See, I notice those who are the most apt to criticize this kind of message have produced offspring that are either teenagers or grown adults and are far from God. What have these men's life produced? They've produced holy, righteous generations that are younger than most pastors and yet are adept at teaching the word of God and have been living holy lives for years. Amen. Today is the day that we put to death and say no to a teenage response from 50, 60-year-old men in this room. You want to do something differently in this ministry? You think you know what should be done? And yet your own life has produced nothing worth imitating until you came here. That is a teenage response that says, Dad, when I get out of here, I'm going to do it differently. Well, I just feel differently about this. What work product in your life would show that your way is better than what the Word of God says? Why are we studying Psalm 101? It's because it's the Davidic picture of how to image God. That you show favor to the faithful in the land and you destroy those that slander. We're watching young men come in here and have for many years. That are single. That can barely hold a job. And give it a few years and they're married, producing children, living godly lives, thriving in every sense of the word. Both in a secular level and in their knowledge and spiritual walk. I'm looking at married men everywhere in here. You were a wreck when you got here, and you're seated in families because of the application of the Word of God. So let me ask again, those of you who have produced nothing worth imitating in your life, what gives you the right to criticize these men? These men are not defending their own reputation. I'm sitting in the crowd listening along with you at the message that will change your life and has changed our lives. And yet knowing that many in the room are harboring your own divisive thoughts about why your way is better. Saints, if your way was better, you wouldn't have left the circus church that you came from to be here. So when we say we're going to learn to say no, Today, we learn to say no to our own ungodly thoughts, and then in your household, and then in the world around you. But we must start by keeping watch over ourselves. We must start with what it looks like to say to no to ungodliness, your thoughts are not above the word. This is not a ministry that exalts the preferences of men. We exalt the convictions of men that come directly from the word. So if you have a problem with the convictions that come from the word, why don't you start by going back to your Bible and developing real convictions from your own study and see what happens. I want to read to you Matthew 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. If it offends some of you that I called you effeminate, I do not apologize. It's the truth, and it's why you struggle with other men in this room who love you. But if you seek, if you ask, Amen. if you knock, 
real holy masculinity will be opened to you and your children and those around you, they will thrive because of it. The grace of God has appeared, pastors, to teach us to say no to ungodliness. You don't have to be taught something that you already know how to do. The point is that you don't know how to say no to the right things. But he will teach you if you ask him to. But it will not come from pretending that you're superior when all of the evidence in your world shows you that you're not. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? Abambola, how much more? Will your Father, who is in heaven, give you good things to those who ask him? Saints, this is a family meeting and we all have one Father, as Ephesians 3.15 said. It's time for you to ask the Father for the good things that you need. Get rid of the insecure compensating, trying to pretend that you don't lack something. And come to the one who will generously give you what you ask. This ministry will not bend to anyone's whims. We will do what we have done for 20 years before and for a thousand years into the future or until the return of Christ. Because we produce men in this room who are some of the most capable, godly human beings that anyone has ever met. And they are more than capable of being gentle, loving husbands, gentle, loving fathers. And I could drop you in Iraq and there would be Christians after three years. Tell me another ministry that you see that is producing that. Look around the room, the people who are on your left and right. You remember when Adam Cora came here? Adam Cora's house is a place of ministry to the young and old alike at this point. When you look around this room and you see a man like Ubong, what wasted potential was in his life until he came here? I don't know who thought he was unimportant, but I know our God knows that his life is important. When I look at men like Memo and Juan, that is the work product of what it looks like to say no to ungodliness and stand in real masculinity. And you know what? He has a godly thriving family now as a result of it. Our actual enemy is not the satanic forces around. It's not all of the trans issues that are out there. It is the inability of men of God to say no to ungodliness. Because when you do that, the rest of the world will bend to your dominion because it comes from God. So again, those of you who are in a place in life where you've raised children. Those of you who've been in this ministry for some time because you knew you needed what we have. I'm challenging you directly. If you've harbored internal criticisms of this kind of message, of our actual practice as a church, whether it's at a wedding reception or it's what we teach from the stage, now is the time for you to seek God and ask him to change you and give you what you need. And this is not a private affair. So you can personally respond with the lights on by walking to the front. 
And what we're going to do, because we're imaging our Father, is not throw you away, but put our hands on you and pray for you and ask God to strengthen you so that you can stand as the men of God that you're called to be. As we begin to pray, now is the time to respond to that. Mighty one, I thank you, Lord, that you are a heavenly father. Lord, I thank you for the earthly fathers that you've given us that have shaped my own life and shaped this ministry. Lord, we're asking that your spirit of grace that teaches us to say no to ungodliness, Lord, it might descend on us, that it might fill us, Lord, that we might go on to be zealous for good works, mighty one. Lord, we know that you are a gracious Father and you will not turn away anyone who asks of you. Lord, so we're asking you now that you would make us into the men that we are supposed to be in your grace, Holy One.